Be with us now, Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word. Oh, Lord, help us to be refreshed by it, strengthened by it, challenged by it, built up in the grace of it. To that end, send forth your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you turn with me this morning in the book of 1 Thessalonians to chapter 4? It's been a season of stepping away from this text, but it seems to me now is the right time to return back to our series that we left off of some months ago. And so we are going to be examining this morning 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me uh, wherever you are, whether you're here or whether you're with us on live stream, to stand up right where you're at with the Word of God out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, inerrant Word. Finally, then brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the late great Professor John Murray's very brief yet excellent and suggestive article entitled Adorning the Gospel. He opens this uh, essay briefly saying two things that he's convinced of. Number one, how difficult the subject is. And number two, how far short we come. So two things are obvious here. And he says them from the outset as he expounds upon this essential biblical topic of adorning the gospel. It's difficult, and we all fall short of it. And yet, despite of these things, uh, we at the same time affirm the non-negotiable nature of it. Every single person is bound by the gospel and their experience of grace to adorn the gospel. And so someone might be saying this morning, well, what in the world do you mean and where did you get the concept of adorning the gospel? And I say, thank you. I'm glad you asked. I got it from the Bible. Titus chapter 2, verse 10, the apostle says to instruct the slaves who are believers, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. There's your call to adorn. Adorn literally means to make something beautiful, to make it complete, to make it whole, to make it be set in order. And the fact that it's the gospel is very evident from the phraseology, the doctrine of God our Savior And so the call is quite clear here. It is the duty incumbent upon the believer to make the gospel beautiful. And C.H. Spurgeon reminds us this morning that this adorning of the gospel isn't left to our creativity. As he points out, we don't adorn it with music. We don't adorn it with painting. We don't adorn it with architecture. And the reason it's not left up to our creativity, the reason it isn't any of those things, is because the apostle makes it painfully clear that it's ethical uprightness as he commands the servant and the slave that they are to not pilfer and they are to show all good faith so that they will adorn it. Indicating quite clearly that the means and the method of the adorning is ethical uprightness. It is to heed the ethical call of God in Jesus Christ, and it is to the believer, as the apostle uses the same concept here in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, as he says, Finally then, brethren. And the setting forth of the call to adorn the gospel is set forth at the very end of the verse when he says unto them, that you excel more. 
And I find it very interesting this morning that the preface, if you will, to this clear, penetrating, incisive ethical call is located in the brackets right before it. Perhaps your Bible doesn't have them, but in the New American Standard, in parenthesis, it says, just as you're actually doing. Notice then that the call to adorn the gospel is, as the apostle says here, something the Thessalonians are already eagerly about the process of. And yet, he says, don't rest on your laurels. You may have made a great start, but the call to the Christian life is that the finish line is a long ways away. And so the duty of the believer is to sprint, not lag. And so this morning, we approach our text through the lens of this concept of adorning the gospel as those who've experienced its grace. And I want to unfold that in three parts the gospel basis of the command, the ethical substance of the command, and the sovereign authority of the command. And we can adjust this as we need, but one of the things that I think is absolutely imperative when we hear the call to adorn the gospel is to be mindful of the fact that this isn't now legalism tacked onto the gospel. One of the things that is imperative that we grasp hold of is that the very call to adorn the gospel is grounded in a gospel basis and experience. That should be evident to us already in the way he addresses the Thessalonians as he calls them brethren. They are those who have tasted of Christ and his grace and his mercy, and he addresses them accordingly. But it seems to me that if we want to grasp hold of a nice chunk of gospel granite and foundation for this call, we need to look at the first words, finally, then. Because the reality is, this is just the great therefore that you find in Scripture, which forms the pivot point or point of transition from gospel proclamation to ethical admonition. And so there's two contexts here. There's the near context of gospel grace, and there's the far context of gospel grace. And I want to take a moment just to look at both of those to refresh us this morning, particularly since it's been some time since we've been in this book of Thessalonians. And so we would look back to the near context, and it's as close at hand as verse 12 and 13, right above your chapter heading where we see the report of the apostles praying, and he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. And then in verse 13, So that he may establish our hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. And so it's a specific prayer. It's for the church. It's emphatic in the original. As he says, You, the Thessalonians, the church, the believers, are those who he is speaking about and who he lifts up in prayer. And the very thing that he prays for them is they would increase and abound in love. And it's interesting that he would use two verbs of great intensity and quantity. It's not just that they would grow a little bit more or in a piecemeal fashion, but these are words which speak of abundance and richness and of of overflowing and so the idea is that their love would abound and would flow like a river and it's a neighborly love it's not a love of self because it's for one another and for all people it's for believers and it's for the unbeliever too Christ would have us be like as himself. We ought ought to be those who who love one another and who love our neighbor as ourself. And then you move on into verse 13 where you see sort of the continuation of it. There is a result contemplated in this love as he goes on to say in verse 13, so that, see that? So that, that marks result Paul is suggesting here, he's saying here that the result of this increase in love 
for one another and for our neighbor will result in something that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. And so what the apostle is contemplating here is the heart consecration and not just a portion, but a thoroughness of the consecration of the heart unto holiness. You see, the connection of ideas between the verses is very important. Because he makes it clear by the grammatical connection of so that, that this great end of a heart consecration and holiness before the Lord will not happen or take place apart from the prior increase in abundance of love. And you say this morning, Pastor John, what does that have to do with the gospel? It sounds like an awful lot of law. And the answer is, Looking at the prayer. Because you'll remember this isn't an admonition of the apostle. This is a prayer of the apostle. And the language of it is critical here as he says, May the Lord cause you to increase. And so the point the apostle here makes as he prays for the people of God. And he records the prayer for the people of God. As he says that the Lord has set a goal for you which is unattainable by yourself. The Lord has given you a calling. The Lord has set for you an example. He has set forth a standard. You can't reach it. And so he says, I pray. May the Lord cause this to happen. On account of the connection of the verses, it's very evident that if you don't have the love of Christ growing and abounding in you, you won't have the holiness of heart before the Lord, which is essential to the believer. And so the idea here is that it is up to the Lord to produce in you what he commands. That's a gospel context. Because as we come now into four one and hear the call to excel still more we need to be clear that the apostle paul hasn't abandoned the gospel or as i said at the outset here tacked on now some legalistic standard he's given us ears for how to hear for one and those ears are gospel ears may the lord cause what he requires to be produced in your hearts. So that's the near context, and then there's a far context to it. And, and again, as we come into these words here of, of finally, then I, I think it would be of some use for us as we return back to the epistle of 1 Thessalonians to remind ourselves of the broader literary context of, of Paul's letters. And, and I think it's important for us to remember. That's something that is sort of a signature of many of the apostles' letters is this great pivot in them where the apostle has been expounding the gospel and then there's a pivot towards the implications of the gospel. And one text that would stand out in my thinking this morning is Ephesians 4.1, which is something of a textbook-like example where he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so we begin once again with the word therefore, just as we have it here in our text. And one of the clear implications of that word therefore is the apostle is saying whatever follows next flows from is connected to what's before. And of course, you'll know with me having expounded this great book for some season, we remember now that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is a tour de force and grace. And who could miss it? Because the opening verses of Ephesians are so powerful in that they represent a benedictory formula of praise to God for the overflow of His grace. And it begins in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every single spiritual grace in the heavenly places in Christ. And then verses 4 through 14 tumble out like a cascading waterfall. Pool after pool leads to more grace upon grace expounded. 
And so it's very evident that the first section of Thessalonians is about grace, but the apostle doubles down here in speaking of the gospel as he says, therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Once again, bringing in gospel picture in the calling, which is a reference to the effectual calling to salvation. That ushering in, the sovereign ushering in of the believer unto Christ as the word is proclaimed externally, the spirit of God persuades and changes and takes the soul internally into Christ and to the appropriation of grace. And he says that experience is at the bedrock. It's at the foundation of this great call to walk. Walk in a manner worthily. Well, that's your typical Pauline literary pattern. And we see it reproduced here. By the way, you should know the, the thematic connection here in the language of walk, which is a metaphor of morality. So we have this um, in Paul's writing, and, and by the way, I think that's of some interest simply because um, if we would follow the best line of scholarship, it's clear that uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians is the second oldest of the Pauline letters and the third oldest letter in the canon. Most likely James was written first, Galatians second, and Thessalonians written after and all in a very close time frame here. So these reflect the earliest of the Christian exhortation and writings. And, and this is steadfast throughout the New Testament, the way God addresses his people through his apostles. But, but again, the, the book of 1 Thessalonians has prepared us for this, hasn't it? Because if we were to go back, as we did in Ephesians 1, to... To the outset, what you see here is a, is a profound declaration of gospel experience. In fact, this is some of the most thrilling and exciting proclamation of gospel experience you find in the Bible. You see, in verse 4, he assures these dear saints that God loves them. They have been chosen by God. And the proof that he gives, and here's the thing the apostle was trying to do, was appeal to an objective record in order that they would be persuaded of the love of God in Christ for them. And here it is. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, the apostle is saying the reason why I can be persuaded and the reason why you can be persuaded of the love of God in Christ and of your having been chosen by God is this. The gospel came to you in word. The gospel came through proclamation. And by the hand of God, it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and in conviction. Each one of those terms is critical. Because he says the gospel didn't come in word only. It didn't come just as a dead letter. He says, no, it came in power. And then he continues the thought with the and there, now explaining by connecting the ideas, power and the Holy Spirit. He moves on to account for why the power of its coming, because it came in the Holy Spirit. The very hand of God brings the gospel right to the heart of the believer. If you've ever done catechism with me, you'll know I always do this. I test to see whether you've understood the exposition of the means of grace adequately. And we are stalwart as reformed people in defending the means, right? We love the means of grace. We love the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments because it is the means by which Christ communicates himself to his people. But we always say something like this. What accounts for the difference? And what we see is that it is the preaching of the word 
under the operation of the Holy Spirit, which makes the difference. Because two people can go to the same spiritual revival, go in equally sinful, hear the precise same sermon, and they can walk away having had two totally different experiences. One goes down to his house redeemed, and the other a sinner. Why? Is it because one has better analytical hearing tools than the other? The answer is found right here in the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of that is full conviction. And why not? If I'm going to lead the the fields of sin and the hog's trough of my corruption, I'd better be persuaded that something better is for me. And that's exactly what is involved in those words, full conviction. It means the Spirit so impresses the truth of the gospel upon this soul that the Spirit says, these words of Christ are for me. The message of the grace of God in Christ is for me. The message of the forgiveness of my sins is for me. The message of the sovereignty of the wind of God blowing as it will to constrain my heart and to change me in the interior of my being. This is mine. And so here you have one of the great uh, illustrations of the uh, experience of gospel grace. And then it's confirmed by concreteness in verse 9. Uh, This is like music to my ears every time I read this text. They themselves report about us. What kind of a reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Here, Paul says, here's what your conversion, here's what your experience of grace was. It was a conversion. It was a U-turn in your life where you made a 180 degree turn from walking in your sin on the highway to hell to by the grace of God separating yourself from sin and turning to Christ. The prepositions here are marvelous. To and from. What did you turn from? Do you know what you turned from? All the filth of your sin. All of your vain, useless, empty life. The idolatry of living according to your own autonomy. The belief that everything's okay with me as long as I have enough creature comfort to last through the night. Well, no, he says you turn from all of that to something. Something very specific, the living God. This is one of the great illustrators of what it means to be converted. And the apostle has all of that which he reaches behind for when he says, finally then. And people of God this morning, this is the story of redemption for everyone who gets saved. We need to be persuaded this morning that the only way The only way to know the hope of eternal life is by the sovereign hand of God. The only way to know experience of gospel grace is for the word to come in power in the Holy Spirit with much conviction so that it turns the heart away from the fields of sin unto the kingdom of God. Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of God without it. So if you're hearing this this morning, I urge you to hear the call to the gospel. I urge you to hear the call of the gospel that Jesus gives when he proclaims his grace. All who are weary and heavy laden, you can come straight to me with all of the burden of your sin and all the burden of your guilt and all the corruption of your heart. You just come. You come straight to me. You have life. Why don't people believe that? Why don't people believe that? The reason they don't believe that is a spiritual problem. 
It's only one that can be corrected by the sovereign hand of the Lord. So if you've this morning heard this call and you've responded to this Christ and you have laid hold of this grace, then this message now is for you. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, if you didn't, tune me out and go straight to the cross right now because there's nothing you need to hear more than that to lay hold of rest in the Lord Jesus. But the apostle says to the brethren, and now we turn towards the ethical call of, of our text, which is this. Excel. The language is fairly simple, and to understand the substance is not hard. The, the language is of Excel literally abound. He said, in fact, you've already understood it, and in fact, you're already doing it. The hinge here is not the excel, it's the adverb more, isn't it? And that's where we begin to get into the difficulty of our text. It's not hard to process it or understand the difficulty, and here's where the falling shortness, if you will, begins to come in, is because of the preposition. Excel more. It's an intensifier. It speaks to almost limitless excellence. And by the way, I was struck in thinking through this concept last week of just how often we encounter this in Paul. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, May the hope of God fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you'll abound in hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, My beloved, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Philippians 1, 9, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. He does not have a simple set of tiny little limitations for the believer. He says, march forward, strive, excel, abound. This is an ethical demand of the highest common denominator, not the lowest. This is not a calling to rush to the bottom, but to the top. The minimum, not the, use whatever contrast you want. I don't care. Now it's going to sound like phony political talk. Get it. The apostle is not saying, well, as long as you're the bottom feeder of the Christian world, that's okay. It's not as if our sins are going to be more taken away if we're excelling more. No. The point is, the riches of the experience of gospel grace calls to something more. Not mediocrity. I'm struck by how often in the New Testament we get little seeds of this. You know, there was real change. Even the time John the Baptist comes preaching the gospel, saying, well, what should we do? He says, well, if you have two coats, sell one of them, give it away. If you're, uh, if you're a soldier, stop stealing from people. To the other person, carry their army. Like, it, it's just like there was constant awareness that uh, for the person who receives this grace... Not as, as, um, as uh, so many little pebbles that need to be consumed to become full of grace somehow or, or to do some moral achieving on our own. There was a, there's an awareness and a, and a profound sense that there would be real change. And I think that's because of you know, the Old Testament prophecies about how in the New Covenant the, the law will no longer be written externally on tablets but inscribed upon the heart. It would be power. And so we read this, we, we hear some maximal calling, not a minimal one, and then we might ask ourselves this morning, did Paul forget to read the Heidelberg Catechism? Because we love quoting the Heidelberg here, uh, question 114, it asks, can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? You know it comes that question comes after the exposition of the Ten Commandments. And it is a natural question after laying bare the, the righteous calling of God in Christ to the believer to say, well, can you keep any of it? And to the relief of every believer, the catechism responds by saying, oh, no. See, the question is, uh, can you increase in faith perfectly? Can, can you increase in love perfectly? 
Can you increase in holiness of heart perfectly? And the honest and grimly realistic answer of the catechism, parroting the words of the Apostle Paul, is no, not even the holiest men in this life keep these. And you say, I can let 1 Thessalonians 4.1 sail right over my head this morning. Until we read the rest of the answer. Where it says, yet so, with earnest purpose, they begin to live not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. That's the adorning of the gospel. That's the call of the gospel. That's the ethical standard for the believer to aim at, excel still more. You haven't arrived. You haven't even barely begun. To every believer who's listening to this call this morning, that should be exactly the assessment of self. You've barely even begun. This is for everyone to hear. And uh, because it's so important for the church to hear, I want to draw out by way of sort of solidification the authority Authority, the sovereign authority of this command. And it breaks down in just a few parts. And one of them is words of appeal. And they are contained in these verbs, first of all. I want you to look at them in verse 1. We request and exhort. By the way, request is too weak. I hope your Bible says urge. Urge. You know, I, I could request all day long if I'm sitting at the table for somebody to pass me the ketchup and not be heard. But if I urge, I might be. The tones and inflections and the sense of my really wanting something. That's the sense of this word, urge. And then he adds to it to the word exhort, which um, is an interesting word because it is an authoritative word, but it does it in a way that feels like it takes the, the sticker out of your toe, if you know what I mean. Because it, it, it's to win over somebody to something. It's to win. It's, it's not full of harshness. In fact, Calvin captures it just right. He's, he calls it an alluring obedience through kindness, not through compulsion and violence. But nonetheless, it's a powerful term. It's a persuasive term. It's one that says, here, I am wrestling with your soul. Paul loves this word, by the way. In his uh, ethical sections in his letters, he, he loves this term. I exhort you. And notice the qualifier on that. In the Lord Jesus which is pretty clear meaning by the authority of the Lord Jesus. The command doesn't come from a, a pastor, an elder, or even an apostle. It comes from the Lord. Now notice the words of duty, and they're pretty strong too. Opt, that's your first word. And it's a binding necessity. It's a must. Opt. It's not something that we can uh, choose. They say, well, you know, let's negotiate that away. It's like the same term is used in uh, 1 Timothy uh, 3 2 of, of an elder, where it says an overseer must be. See, it, it's not one of those things where, well, you know, if uh, this would be a good wish or a nice suggestion. No, no, no. It's, a, it's an imperative, it is a requirement, it is a duty. And, and that force of it all is strengthened by the term that he, he mentions here, um, exhort you in the Lord that as you received from us, as you had a walk. And this term received uh, is a sneaky little term. Because in English, we think, eh, it's like catching a football or something. That's very different in, in uh, Paul's thought world. Because um, this is a technical term used among the rabbis to refer to the transmission of authoritative material and reception of it by the disciple. 
And believe me, Paul's very aware of Jesus likes to use this term as well. He used it to criticize the Pharisees in, John, in Mark uh, 7 as he talks about how they've received a whole list of things like washing of cups and pitchers and pots and all of this is for their piety is placed right beside the authority of, of the moral law of God. But, but by using this terminology, by reaching for it and bringing it in here, he's saying you received it. It was transmitted to you as part of the authoritative moral and ethical instruction. You got it. And then notice the duties prescribed to walk. Paul loves this term. We already saw it in Ephesians 4.1, right? This is about moral duty. He talks of... Uh, walking properly, of walking in the Spirit, of walking worthy of God, of walking in the Lord, and walking in newness of life, of walking in love, and walking in faith, of walking in wisdom. Paul is constantly using walk because it's a moral metaphor. And he uses it quite often to contrast two walks. There's, there's the walk of unbelief. There's the walk of the Gentile, which is in the futility of their mind, which is in immorality and purity and passion and evil. And according to the flesh, that walk has to be put away. Replaced with this walk, this life. And so all of that is to be brought into here, into these words of appeal. And the other is to please God. And that's obviously... Uh, to conform to his statutes. What else pleases God than obedience? What else pleases God but heartfelt obedience? Remember, uh, you know this from the Old Testament, our studies of Samuel, where we learn in, in, in 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience in the fat of rams. What God would have is heartfelt consecration. The person who loves him and out of love for him obeys him. And the thing that uh, I just note here is they, they've already felt the weight of it again. Um, we've already said this before, but the words are clear. Uh, just as you actually walk, they know it. It's clear to them. Then there's this last thing that draws out the sovereign authority of it all. They've already acknowledged it, right? They're doing it. But the thing that draws it out is your connection of ideas. Go to verse 2 with me here. Where we just heard the words excel still more, and now we have the word for. Well, again, we're back to, to, to words that we stop on all the time. Why are they here? Because the answer is, Paul is saying... The reason why you must heed this command is because of what? For. Well, what follows for? Well, because he says it's the, it's, uh, you know what the commandments we gave you are by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's grounding the authority of the duty to excel. And he says that excelling is a whole set of commandments. Powerful, sovereign duties. And what makes it all tied together is this authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you probably have that italicized in your Bible like I do. And the reason is because it's not in the original. It is um, drawing out the sense. And as much as I'm a huge fan of just straightforward... <laughs> literal translation of the Bible, at least here you got some sense of what the grammatic nuance of the text is. This is exactly what he is saying. This is a command that comes from on high. It doesn't come from the church. It doesn't come from the presbytery meeting or the synod or some church council. No, he says this comes, the commandments come the, the content of what it means to excel still more, all of it comes from Christ, from the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And the fact that this is important to Paul is highlighted by this no less than eight times. In 1 Thessalonians 4-5, through 5, do we read of Paul connecting ad admonition to God or to Christ or to Jesus 
as Lord because he wants to impress upon the people of God this comes from heaven. It's full of divine authority. And we need to embrace the sovereignty of the call to live it. So let's think about the application of our text. People of God, and it seems to me that we should kind of return back to where we began with John Murray in his, uh, well, I think, uh, fair and honest words. He says uh, about the subject of adorning the gospel, it's difficult and we all fall short. And now we know why, right? Not that it's hard to understand, because it's hard to do. It's not just that you're called to excel, but to excel more and more and more and more. And so as you look at your life this morning, and I'll let you be the assessment of where you stand morally and ethically, but I'll just say that it's probably fair that uh, a reasonable and honest person will say it's pitiful falling short but yet I have this calling and uh, I, I think that, that, that we make this more than just something that we shake our heads at and say yep this is something we should do it's right there in black and white uh, I want us to seize the motives the motives of it and I think there's three here um, knowledge authority and gospel grace knowledge authority and gospel grace. We know what it means to adorn the gospel, that we are under a divine obligation to do it. We have a clear knowledge, and it seems to me the starting point to doing anything well is knowing what you're supposed to do. It's hard enough to do a hard thing when you're figuring out the hard thing as you go along. And that's not where we are at. The truthfulness of where we're at is we know the hard thing and we know what it looks like. And we know what it looks like because Paul says, just as you have been actually walking and doing, well, that is the key entry into what in the world have they been doing? You see, if he's saying, I want more of what you are doing, and you're excelling more and more, then it's obvious to us that Paul says, you're doing the right things. And so we need to ask, what are those things? Glad you asked. Paul opens a letter with it. 1 Thessalonians 1. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope by prefacing this laundry list of things they're doing with we give thanks to God for it. He's placing his seal of approbation on it. You are on the right track, and the right track is works of faith, labors of love, steadfastness of hope. This is what it means to excel. Just keep doing that. How about 1 Thessalonians 1.6? You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, and having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So what does it look like to excel more? I want more of the same, so what is it you've been doing is right? Paul isolates this as commendable. They received the word much tribulation. And they did so with joy. They became imitators of the apostles and of the Lord. They, they became examples to everybody in their neighborhood. They, 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 they were bearing the fruits of the gospel of Christ before men, as the call of Jesus says we are to do. How about 1 Thessalonians 2.13? You received the word of God, which you have heard from us, and you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. Excelling still more is embracing and seizing and grasping hold of the word as it really is. Not a humanist manifesto. And good grief, can people stop seeing this is what Christianity is for? Is to become a better person. No, it's not. The heart of Christianity is Christ and being saved by Christ. I'm not made better by myself. I 
am saved by grace. And then God does the sanctifying of me through his what? His word. And if I'm not receiving the word as God's, good luck on being sanctified by it. tired of hearing people act like they have the right to comment on the Bible and say, well, some people say it's good for religious experience. It can't be all bad. Really? No, the apostle doesn't commend them for having such a flippant and irreverent uh, conception of the word. He says, you've received it for what it really is, the word of God. And so this morning, people of God, we know what it is. We know what the excellent things are. We have a knowledge of it, and they're, they're right here. Works produced by faith, laboring in love for one another, becoming examples to others of the transforming grace of Christ, receiving Scripture um, as the Word of God by faith. Knowledge is a motive. So the question is, how will you apply this? How will you apply this? You know it. How are you being called to excel more? What labors of love are you being called to? What works of faith are you being called to express? What kind of testimony for Christ and gospel grace can you be around the unbelievers who surround you? That's the calling. Paul isolates it. He speaks of it. And then he pivots and says, I want more of it. We know what it is. The second motive is authority. And we've highlighted that Paul highlights it. In verse 1, he exhorts them in the Lord Jesus. And in verse 2, he talks about commands that he's given by the Lord Jesus. We've mentioned that eight times in chapters 4 through 5, Paul stresses the authority of the commandments as having come from God. And so this morning, one of the motives to obedience is saying, these are authoritative because they come from Christ the Lord, and Christ the Lord owns me. Remember, that's what it means to be redeemed. You've been purchased with the blood of Christ. He's Lord. He owns you. That means he has the right to command you. Remember how Paul says it in Galatians 2? It's no longer I who lives. Christ who lives in me. You see, the authority of the command is they come from Jesus who bought us. Well, this is so important to internalize. I don't need to tell you this morning that the culture in which we live is a swamp of moral relativism. And because it's a swamp of moral relativism, there's no concept of duty. I am only on duty for things that I am under obligation to perform. If there's no obligations, if there's no moral imperatives, they've all been reduced to nothing except for pure subjectivity. Duty's gone. We should never underestimate how that's affecting us. We should never underestimate what happens when we live in a swamp of moral relativism. It's awful to hear about what happened to, uh, to, to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's even worse to hear what happened to Lot. That righteous man, we're told, was being affected by it. That's what happened. This morning, people of God, it's a motive to excel, to remember the authority. Christ has the authority to command. And so it's a challenge to us to see what in my life does this need to meddle with? What in my life does this have the authority to change? Part of responding to the commandments of God is acknowledging their divine authority. The last motive here, let's lift, lift the weight off our shoulders, huh? Gospel grace. Knowledge is important to have as a motive. 
awareness of the authority of the commands is, is important. Oh, but how we cherish this too, don't we? Gospel, grace. I, I could say it's the essential motive, right? Because if we didn't have it, we'd go nowhere. Because even as believers, I, I love the fact he addresses it to brothers, which means it's clearly those for whom the word has come in power and the Holy Spirit in full conviction. It's clear to those who have experienced the great spiritual return of life and they've turned away from their idols unto the living God to serve him. But that's not going to be enough for me. I'm going to need something else. I've got a new heart. Oh, but I need new streams of grace, don't I? And that's exactly the motive here, too. God's changed the heart. He's changed our attitudes by it. He's still working on us. But the reality is, oh, I love this statement, Philippians 2, right? It is God who works in you both to will and to do. And that's exactly what the apostle is praying back here in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. May the Lord cause you. See, it's the Lord's will that we appeal to him for the grace. We're not free this morning to tone down the command or put it in a box, neglect it, ignore it, or pretend it's not there. We're able to say it's probably fair to say, Lord, this is too hard for me. But then what we're called to do is to say, Lord, cause it. Command what you will, but grant what you command. And so as we do that, we'll find the strength to excel still more. So let's commit ourselves to these motives. Knowledge, authority, gospel grace. And these means we'll start to make some progress at adorning the gospel. Father, we thank you for your word, how, how it soothes the soul, quiets the heart, makes our spirits calm, and nourishes, builds, enlivens, invigorates, fills with hope. It distracts us in a great way from all of the troubles and cares of the world, too. Lord, would you use this word this morning to challenge us? No one here, no one here need to see that this call is not for them if they're a believer. So we all know how difficult it is and it's required of us. So we come down right here on our knees, Lord, and we ask you that you do what the apostle prayed as he prayed for the Thessalonians. Cause to abound and increase. So Lord, we... Uh, place ourselves before you in humility with uh, the hands of beggars and ask that you would heap them up with mounds of heavenly grace. Here's for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.